Welcome to the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast, the podcast where each week we take a passage of the Bible, we read it together, and we discuss it, getting the three different perspectives off of three different people. As always, I have with me Lachlan Miller, our expert. Hello. Morgan Carter, our newbie. Hello. And I'm Joshua Lee, the PK pastor's kid. How are you all doing, everyone? I'm doing well, Josh. Uh, but Em and I are heading to Europe in like two and a half weeks, mm. which means... I'm prepping everything that needs to be done before I could head to Europe so that church and church ministry can all continue in my absence. And so while I'm taking four to five weeks off, what that really means is I'm doing four to five weeks of extra work in preparation for having the time off. It's always funny when you try and go on holidays. There's almost, there's more work that needs to be done in order to have that relaxation. But otherwise good, getting through the work, slowly pumping through it all. Morgan? Um, I'm doing okay. Um, I lost my grandma since we recorded the last episode, so just had some time off work and just getting back into things slowly. So, yeah, not the best time, but happy to be back recording. Mm, of course. No, we're, we're very sorry for your loss. Mm. Thank yeah. you. Sending you th- prayers and thoughts. Thanks. How are you, Josh? I'm doing well. It, yeah, it's coming up to Alyssa and I's one year anniversary. Exciting. It's uh, this, so quick. It has. It's, I know, one year ago, which does mean that this podcast is over a year old mm-hmm. now uh, with your anniversary, my anniversary, that um, it's just crazy on multiple on multiple levels. It's just gone both equally quick quick but also slow at the same time but the one year anniversary is happening on sunday which is exciting so very much looking forward to that mm. doing anything special at the um, at the moment we're just going out um for dinner we've got a voucher that my parents lovely gifted us nice uh which is very very nice and then hopefully at some point we'll uh go away somewhere but we've just been waiting for Alyssa to finish up this big job and then we're gonna plan plan that out mm. nice lucky what chapters are we doing today We're doing Genesis chapters 36 to 38. Today's passage comes from the book of Genesis chapters 36 to 38. In these chapters, the focus shifts from Esau and Jacob to their children. We first read of Esau's offspring, the mighty Edomite chieftains. Then we read of Jacob's sons, starting with Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which antagonizes his brothers and causes them to sell Joseph into slavery. Finally, we read about Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. So to quickly recap last episode, because it seems like both Morgan and Josh have totally forgotten what happened last episode, uh, which is okay, because that means our <laughs> listeners probably have to. Um, we had Jacob return to the promised land, return to Canaan. He was reunited with his brother, Esau, and reunited with his father, Isaac. There was a few adventures in the land of Canaan with him and his sons. Mm. And then ultimately, we ended chapter 35 with three deaths. We had the death of Deborah, which was the nurse that looked after Jacob from a young child. We had the death of Rachel, his beloved wife. And then we had the death of Isaac, the patriarch. And so we said that those three deaths signaled that we were hitting a new section of the book of Genesis, the torch had been handed over to the next generation. And as we also said, once that torch is handed over, we always look at the non-promised line first, which is why we've started today's reading by looking at chapter 36, Esau's descendants, because Esau is the non-promised line. And so we're going to wrap up his story before we go to the adventures of Jacob's children. Now, this is a huge list of names. <laughs> it's yes. an entire chapter dedicated um, to the descendants of Esau. And I'll be really honest and say that I skipped the whole of 36 and went straight <laughs> to 37 in our reading time. You certainly do not appreciate genealogies. <laughs> I don't. I get lost after like three names, so I just don't see the point. I just let you explain it to me. <laughs> <laughs> well... We'll see if I could bring any light or some interesting points out, but maybe let's start with Josh. Anything stand out to you as we read through 36? The um, the descendants of Esau become the uh, Esauites? Edomites. Edomites. Because Esau is also known as Edom. Edom, yep. He has both names. In the same way that Jacob is also known as Israel. Yep. Did, I, did anything really stand out? No, not really. Like, th- there was no, for me, there was no names that I recognized or mm-hmm. that stood out. I 
I find it interesting though that it becomes rulers out of over Edom, mm. and we get a specific list of kings. So we start with the descendants of Esau, and then who are clan leaders, and then we get a list of from like leaders to kings, mm-hmm. um, and sort of like looking at this as like it becoming more of that sovereign sort of land, um, if you will. Yeah. So if you remember way back to when Esau was even born, Rebecca was told that in your womb are two different nations. Mm. And here we see that that is being fulfilled, at least in the life of Esau and his descendants, is literally an entire nation comes from him. And we find out in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 12, that Esau displaces the people who lived in this area, who were known as the Horites, and he his descendants become the rulers or the people who occupy this area, which is very similar to what Israel will do later on in the Old Testament when they invade Canaan and dispossess the Canaanites of the land. Mm. The difference is that Israel dispossessed the Canaanites by invading and wiping them out, whereas Esau dispossesses the Horites by intermarrying and effectively becoming the most dominant clan within the Horites. And so by marrying a bunch of them and starting to rule over them, it's Esau's descendants that become great and powerful clan leaders in this region. Almost in a way is smarter because you're doubling your... (laughs) A lot less effort. Well, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I think different different approaches, but I think the um, you have a lot more people at your disposal. In the like, you're multiplying your your clan and your your, your people rather than driving an entire nation out and mm. then replacing not, it. Yeah, replacing replacing it here. You're just multiplying. Mm. Is there any names of significance that are significant to to us or that are like that will pop out late like later on or is it or just sort of just pretty stock standard? In terms of the narrative of the Bible, no, there are no particularly important names in this list. Um, I think Anna who discovered the hot springs is worth a mention purely because the text just lists a whole bunch of names, but then decides to tell us that this is the Anar who discovered the hot springs. Yes. Whilst, whilst he was grazing his father's donkey. Yes. I should also point out that the word translated as hot springs there is disputed. Um, It may just be water. So like this person found water in the desert. So that's why they're famous. There are translations that think the word should be vipers. So this is a guy who just found a bunch of snakes in the desert. Two very different things. (laughs) What's that mean by in verse 6 where it says, Esau took his wife's, his sons, his daughters, and all the members, and he lists stuff. What's the beasts? Mine says livestock, all the beasts, and all his property that he had acquired. Is that just like pigs or something not very nice? Or Yeah, it's just referring to another type of animal that isn't traditionally considered a livestock. I don't know exactly what animals that incorporates. Hmm. But he just, he was wealthy. But I think what is important from pointing out verse 6 there is we're seeing a direct contrast between Esau and Jacob. So Esau stayed in the land of Canaan. He got married there. He had kids there. And then he left. Whereas Jacob left the land of Canaan, got married outside of the land, had kids outside of the land, then returned. Mm, Which is fulfilling God's promise of he will provide him wealth and everything in and also the commandment of staying in Canaan, like the the promise and um, the commandment way back to Abraham, whereas we're seeing the non-promised line here moving away from that. Which again, I think is us seeing God at work in the text because we're not told why Esau moved his family out of Canaan, why they decided to settle in a different land. But what it does do is it frees up the land for when Jacob returns Mm. to be just his. And so, again, a threat, a challenger to this whole land that would have been Esau is removed and Jacob can just live here at peace. Mm. Otherwise, there would have been a lot of infighting, Mm. especially because they were told that they were going to be wrestling forever. (laughs) <laughs> like yes. you know, like not just the two the two brothers, but the d- generations to come will just be wrestling with each other. Mm. Um, so at least they give get some sort of breathing room. Mm. Verse thirty one says, "These are the kings who ruled in the land of Edom before any king ruled over the Israelites." Mm. So implying that the Israelites later on are going to be ruled over 
by someone else or the um, the kings that reside in Edom. So what verse 31 is doing is it's predicting the Israelite monarchy. Yep. It's predicting that one day King Saul, then King David, then King Solomon will rule over the Israelites as kings. But it's giving us a, a dating point and saying that all of these Edomite chieftains that we've just read about, they're all from before the time of David. Mm. So so it won't be a, an Edomite king, it will be an Israelite king. I think what it's saying is these were the kings that reigned in Edom. Yep before Israel Israel ever had a king. Yep. So it's not that Edomite kings will rule over Israel and it's not that Israelite kings will rule over Edom. Mm. It's just saying that this monarchy, these chieftains that we've just explained are from an earlier time period than mm. the kingdom of Israel. Yeah. Which is an interesting note because it means whoever was writing or at least editing this part of Genesis was probably writing during or after the time of the Israelite monarchy. Yeah. Because right here they are knowingly saying Israel is ruled by a king, mm. but I'm writing about a time frame before, before that has happened. That, yeah, it makes sense. They would need to have that knowledge. Mm. Which throws back to our very first episode where we discussed who wrote this book of Genesis yep. and it continues to make that a confusing question to figure out. It does. Because that definitely puts into question of like, well, you would need to know that there was someone ruling over the Israelites. If it was written before that time then you couldn't like the, the, just the timeline doesn't make sense anyway it... if you were a strong supporter of mosaic authorship of genesis your argument would be in the laws revealed to moses mm. as part of the the time god gave moses all of those laws yeah included rules and laws about how a king in Israel was to operate. Yeah. And so if Moses has received these laws about what a kingdom will look like one day in the future, he could have then written the book of Genesis and included this line looking forward prophetically to when this kingdom would be established. True. So that would be the defense of Mosaic authorship. Yeah. The other viewpoint would be, oh, this is just clear proof that this was written after 1000 BC mm. because that's when the kingdom of David was established. Personally, I think I sit in a middle ground where I think most of Genesis or most of the Pentateuch is of mosaic origins, but it went through several series of edits across history. Yeah. And it would have been one of the editors who have put this little side note in mm. saying, hey, just letting you know the time frame of this. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. So many different bits of information coming coming together and one person sort of collating it all into one finalized thing. I feel like I've asked this before, but why is this here? Like, why is it needed in this part of the Bible? As I said before, this is sort of wrapping up Esau's story, which is partly why. But as Josh pointed out, this is a far longer, more comprehensive genealogy than when we wrapped up Ishmael's story. Mm. And so there's clearly more going on here than just wrapping up Esau's story. I think it is best explained by appealing to a few other verses from the Pentateuch. So for instance, in Numbers 2014, Moses says to the king of Edom, this is what your relatives, the people of Israel say, you know, the hardships we have been through. Or in Deuteronomy 23 verse seven, Moses says, do not detest the Edomites for the Edomites are your relatives. Mm. And so what we see from the rest of the Old Testament is that the Israelites have always regarded Edom as their relatives, like they're also their neighbor. And yes, there was conflict between them at times, but primarily they can all trace their way back to Isaac. Mm. And so therefore this whole nation that sat at their very borders was their relative and therefore was an important group of people to have good positive relationships with. And part of having good positive relationships is knowing about them, yeah. is knowing their culture, knowing their chieftains, just knowing about them. Mm. And cult culturally speaking, if, you know, through the stories passed down from generation, you would have told that, you know, tr your families get traced back to the two, to the two brothers. Mm. And that's how, and you, that's why we have the two clans. Uh, it would be quite important to keep up that. And you probably have this almost, I would imagine, uh, this sense of um, ownership and almost uh, siblingness of mm. o over over that that specific clan. I've actually been prepping a Bible study for Sunday. I'm taking my youth through the minor prophets at the moment, and we're looking at Obadiah on Sunday. And Obadiah is a minor prophet who is condemning Edom, 
mm. condemning the Edomites because they stood by while Israel was invaded and destroyed. And so literally that entire book of the Old Testament is condemning Edom because they refused to help their relatives in Israel. And so even at that very late point in Israelite history, we see that there has always been a strong connection between these nations. So why is it this connection that is the strong connection, not something like um, the connection between like Ishmael or, or someone like that? I assume it's what became of the nations that came from them. Yeah. So the Ishmaelites became nomadic desert-dwelling people. Mm. And so while there's interactions between them and the Israelites later on, it's not quite the same as having a fully formed large nation that is neighboring you. Yep, that makes sense. And that's why I think the Edomites are an important people to always be aware of where they came from. Mm, makes sense, makes sense. And with that, we wrap up Esau's story and we get to focus now just on Jacob and his kids. We do. Following the, as we keep saying it, the chosen line. Mm. And instantly we see a contrast. We've just been looking at Esau as this like great father of chieftains who's ruling over this land. He's created a dynasty of rulers. He has total dominion of this land. And then we jump to the story of Jacob and he's living in Canaan, still doesn't own any land because he's sojourning there mm. and he has just 12 kids. Yep. That's that's hardly the large nation that we've just read about. I love how casually you say just 12 kids. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Look, yeah, I, I get that. <laughs> like if someone said that today, it'd be like 12, what car do you have? Like, But it's just 12 kids in comparison to like the mighty dynasty that we've just yeah. read about yeah. on behalf of the Edomites. <laughs> and if we remember the, these 12 kids, it was quite a journey mm-hmm. to go on to get to the point of, of, 12, of 12 kids and you know, the naming conventions and yep. and just trying to get Jacob's attention. <laughs> uh, you know, if we remember back, it was um, a bit of a roller coaster of a, of, of a ride of, and all of a sudden we've got 12 kids from four different women. Mm. Technically, we, 13 kids, the 12 tribes of Israel that are the most famous ones, which is why we keep saying 12. Mm. Sorry, Dinah. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, it's a bit overlooked. You keep saying 12, but I've got highlighted 11 stars and I want to know whether, want to know why there were only 11 stars. Yeah, great, great pickup. Um, I'm jumping ahead a bit, I know that, but just coming off your 12, I want to know why there's only 11 stars. Um, it's 11 stars because Joseph is the 12th and the 11 stars represent his 11 brothers oh. who will bow down before him. Mm. Right. And so this is all surrounding Joseph's dream here. Mm. And that's one of Joseph's Joseph's dream. Should we backtrack just one step further and go, who is Joseph? We should. <laughs> like I'm sure any of our readers who actually read the passages in preparation for our podcast know exactly who Joseph is, but I think it's always worth reminding ourselves of mm. who he is. And if you're definitely brought up in like, like me, in Sunday school, Joseph, the story of Joseph is quite a um, well, well-known well one. Mm, very famous. So I don't have any preconceived story because I've never heard a story of Joseph. Really? So what, do you, what was your, just before we even like jump into, jump into it, what were your, what's your thoughts on Joseph, like having that background? This is going to sound really stupid, but just hearing the name Joseph, I think of like baby Jesus's dad, Joseph <laughs> yep. and Mary, um, with my context all out. Like if I hear oh, the famous story of Joseph, like that's what I'd go to. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously that's wrong now that I've learnt all this. Um, but I have absolutely no idea about Joseph. I mean, there's multiple multiple Josephs in in, in the <laughs> Bible, but it, but it's fair though that you would say that Jesus's father, being Joseph, is the most known one um, mm. because you know it's Jesus and he's 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 the reason why we're all here, right? So fair, <laughs> but Joseph appears in what like one chapter of the New Testament. <laughs> he does. He, whereas yeah. Joseph in Genesis is the next major character after Jacob. Like we've had Isaac as a, sorry, we've had Abraham as a major character who then passes the torch onto Isaac briefly, who passes passes the torch onto Jacob, who now passes the torch onto Joseph, who has the rest of the book of Genesis. Mm. And so in terms of us who grew up in Sunday school, it is by far this Joseph that is the more famous. It is. is. Like being a newbie as well, like I just assume that this is a story. This whole book's a story. They're not going to have multiple of each person, but like obviously (laughs) they do. Like a normal book you'd read wouldn't only have a character more than once. With the same name? Yeah. So Mm. in my head, I'm like, oh, it's the same Joseph. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> it's not. Not quite. No, no, this isn't the growing up of Joseph, the, um, Joseph um, of... Is he from Bethlehem? His family's from Bethlehem. Beth, yeah, his family's from he Bethlehem. He lived in Galilee. Galilee. Anyway, to bring us back, this Joseph is son of Jacob, the first son that was born to his favorite wife, Rachel. Mm. And so there's something about Joseph that is super special to Jacob because his favorite wife, this is his firstborn via his favorite wife, but otherwise the second youngest of his children. And it says in three, now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Yeah, yeah. And you would think if anyone... Jacob would remember what favoritism did to a family. Yes. Because he was the favorite of his mother while his brother was the favorite of his father. Mm. And that caused all types of division. And he ended up spending 20 plus years separated from his mother because of it. Mm. But no, no, unfortunately, old habits die hard. Mm -hmm. And so so much so that um, he gives Joseph a coat. Yes. What type of coat does he give him? A robe. (laughs) <laughs> yes, anything more specific than robe? Oh. <laughs> do, you, do you know what colour color robe it is, Morgan? I'm just going to go with what I think it would be, maroon. <laughs> so so we, um, I think what's most commonly known um, is that Joseph has a multicoloured rainbow robe. That's that's always how it's been depicted in your Sunday school kids book. The Technicolor Dream Coat. Yes. Isn't that a famous musical or play or something? It is. Yeah, mine says of many colors. Mm. Now, was it actually many colors? I don't want to rain on our parade. <laughs> you got to tell me it's not multiple colors. <laughs> I'm saying that there's a chance that it How do you is. know you weren't there? <laughs> so when The first century Jews came to translate this passage from Hebrew into Greek. They translated this Hebrew word into Greek as many coloured. And so we get our our ideas from the Greek version of the Old Testament that says he was given a robe of many colours. The alternative translation is in 2 Samuel 13, 18, this same word is used again. And there it simply refers to a robe with long sleeves. <laughs> it's not as fun, a robe so with long sleeves. it would have been a very ornate robe with long sleeves, but there is a chance that it's not a Technicolor dream coat. Yep. I just can't imagine a rainbow coat in that time. Like, it doesn't seem like the vibe. <laughs> yeah, they went and found a pink sheep and then they found a, a blue sheep. And... Yeah, true. Like, how'd they do that? <laughs> I'm sure they had dyes of some type. Yeah. You like, dyeing clothes feels like a very old school technology. Mm. So I'm sure it could have been multicolored. And there's a good argument for it to be multicolored. I'm just saying don't base any important theology on the idea that it's multicolored. No. Because there's a chance that it was just a long-sleeved ornate robe so maybe it possibly was maroon morgan yeah yeah could, maybe maybe it was just the one color <laughs> i just imagine it to be maroon in my head when i read it fair i can tell you that by the end of the story it is definitely red <laughs> Ooh. spoilers <laughs> sorry we'll get there anyway and then we get up to his dreams then which we get up is where we started this conversation joseph's <laughs> dreams because morgan jumped us ahead <laughs> as usual sorry i get really excited well first we have the dream of bundles of grain mm-hmm and similar to the stars, it is bundles of grain that are gathered together and are, bla- are bowing low before his bundle of grain. And some scholars think that this is a hint towards why his brothers will end up bowing down before him. Yes. Which is for grain, but that's a big spoiler alert, and that that's is. next episode. Yes. And so the both both dreams are surrounding how Joseph is going to be either ruling or in terms of a hierarchy or mm. class is going to be higher than his brothers. Mm. And not just his brothers, his father as well. Because mm. in that second dream, you have the sun that represents his father, the moon that represents his mother, although it's probably representing Leah because his mother has already died before this moment in the story, they are also bowing down before him. Mm. And so it's he will be superior not just over his brothers, which is bad enough as the second youngest, but Mm. over his own father. Mm. And father that's very much still alive too. You know, if we think of like like culturally as well, to take over the reins before the head of the household Mm. is gone. It's a big, big, big no-no. And you can then understand why all the older brothers and the father gets upset with him. <laughs> yes. 
it says his brothers hated him all the more. And I love reading Joseph in these first stories that he appears in because he just appears as the biggest idiot ever. Because, like, you have these brothers that clearly don't like you and then you just keep antagonising them. He's like, oh, that just... Hey, boys, guess what? I had this dream. (laughs) And I'm going to be better than all of you. (laughs) No, Joseph, shut up. (laughs) Like, it strikes me as a very young child vibe. Like, I've definitely encountered kids who are this not socially aware that they would continue to antagonise people almost unintentionally by continuing to say things like this. Yeah. Well, it says he's 17. Hmm. So. Yeah, but I'm saying he's not that mature. <laughs> <laughs> Boys aren't mature, so it's fine. It's true. His uh, prefrontal lobe <laughs> is nowhere near ready. No. Still got a couple of years. <laughs> but while his brothers hate him for this, I find it interesting that his father kept the matter in mind. Mm, I did like that. Because I think Jacob's entire story is realizing that God can choose the younger to trump the elder. Mm, yes. And so. Jacob has learnt some things from his long life and one of them is the openness to the idea that it may not be his firstborn son that does anything important, it may be his second youngest that becomes the one with all the authority. Mm, yeah, his father wondered about the, what the dreams meant. Because mm. mm. he also knew that God could communicate in this way. Yeah. Well, Jacob also had a dream Yeah. of a, of a ladder or a staircase. Staircase. <laughs> he's he's got to hold that staircase, <laughs> yeah. not not a ladder. That sort of happy-go-lucky attitude, mm. not necessarily maybe realizing sort of like the situation that Joseph's in, sort of continues on of like when Jacob goes and instructs him to to Joseph to go out to the flocks with his brothers that are um, herding the the, the sheep. Mm-hmm. It's like. No, I'm ready to go. You know, straight away, and just uh, like you know, off, off, off he goes to, to with his with his brothers, not thinking of any sort of consequences or what his brothers might think. Mm-hmm. And granted, to give Joseph the benefit of the doubt, I wouldn't necessarily think that your bro- your own blood is going to want to be too antagonizing against you. Yeah, because I think scripture holds up the killing of your brother or of a family member is one of like the worst possible results of human sin. Mm. Like it was one of the first big ones with Cain and Abel is killing of a brother. Yeah. And it's constantly held up as like, this is one of the worst things you could consider. Mm. But his brothers consider it. They do. And to their credit, they don't go through with any sort of killing. Which is because Reuben, who we learnt last episode is a dodgy dude because he slept with his father's wife, actually stands up for Joseph here. And so while he's sort of, he's he's a lost cause in the eyes of his father, like Jacob has no time for Reuben anymore, he still has a sense of morality or he wants to work his way back into Jacob's good graces and Mm. keeping Joseph alive is a prime way of doing that. I never thought of it that way, that potentially he's trying to regain his respect, like the respect back. Yeah. But it is interesting because you read, you read that, Reuben was secretly planning to rescue Joseph. Mm. It's like in, it's almost like this story, the like the arc of, of of a story, and like we're getting to sort of like the conflict, and you're like, oh, but there's a bit of hope here that you know, like Joseph's gonna, he's gonna be fine. He's yeah. gonna be fine. He's gonna be fine. They're gonna, he's Reuben's gonna come. He's gonna rescue him until Judah, who arguably is the next main character after Joseph, suggests something that is just evil which is let's make some money off this guy. Yes. And so they decide to sell Joseph to some travelling merchants. Couldn't he have said no to being sold? I don't think that's how slavery works, unfortunately. You can say, no, I don't want to be sold. <laughs> yes, but again, don't think that's how slavery works. <laughs> I'm sure that the, uh, unfortunately, the slaves of in, in history also may have uttered those words and <laughs> to not no. great success. No, I'm more expensive. Because <laughs> the price that they pay for him, 20 shekels of silver, we find in other ancient documents as the standard price for a slave. Mm. Um, it's also, interestingly, about three years' wages for a shepherd. So mm. it's quite a bit of money the brothers have suddenly come into. And Joseph is also, at this point, stuck in the well. Yeah. And so I think... There was no no way of him getting out of this, unfortunately. Like they have to get him out of the well and you've already like you've already captured him, you've already got him then. He's unfortunately there's no escape here. Now these traders are Ishmaelites. Yes. But also Midianites. Hmm. Is that a contradiction, Josh? <laughs> I'm like, hang on. <laughs> 
Because the Ishmaelites were descended from Abraham via Hagar, and the Midianites were descended from Abraham via the wife he took after Sarah died. Oh. And so they all go back to Abraham, but what we find in the rest of the Bible is that Ishmaelite becomes the broad general term for a desert tribe. Mm-hmm. Like that just becomes the standard go-to term. So even in Judges 8.24, the word Ishmaelites and the word Midianite are used interchangeably. Yeah. And so the best guess is they were Midianites by ethnicity, mm. but every desert-dwelling tribe was could be fairly referred to as Ishmaelites because Ishmael was the first one to start that lifestyle. Yeah. yeah. Why didn't the dad stop him from going? Like, was he threatened? Did he feel threatened? So clearly... Jacob at no point thought his sons would ever do this to Joseph. Mm. So why didn't he step in and be like, no, boys, don't do that? Well, you see, if we look at the distances that Joseph has travelled, we see that he's travelled about 80 kilometres. So from where Jacob is living and where he sent Joseph from to go find his brothers where they're grazing their sheep is to go from the Valley of Hebron to Shechem which again is 80 kilometers. So Jacob was nowhere nearby. He has no idea what's going on. Mm. And sort of as we see sort of coming up here, they're going to now deceive Jacob Mm. and show show that Joseph died. Yeah. And not even mention anything about that he got sold or that they sold him. They're going to kill a goat. They're going to use its blood to spread all over his multicolored long-sleeved tunic (laughs) and then present it to Jacob and say, we found this, Joseph must be dead. And there is very strong irony going on here Mm. because it was with the skin of a goat that Jacob deceived his father Isaac. Mm. So with the death of a goat, Jacob stole the blessing from Esau and now his sons with the death of a goat have deceived him about what has happened to his own son. Mm. And so Jacob has been deceived as he was once a deceiver. Yeah, sort of eating your own medicine almost. Mm. Yeah, so the irony is meant to be very strong as we read that, again, it was a goat that was used for this purpose. What's interesting is they only bring the coat back. Now, I know that if you like, you, you, you know, sort of bring, bring back the coat, that, that's a, like, you know, that's a lot for Jacob to sort of take in. But at some point, I, I'm also questioning, wouldn't you ask about the body? Um, and, or go looking for or it. Or go looking for it to sort of have that burial and, and closure and, mm. and, sort of, and sort of move on. Now, here it doesn't seem like there was any thought put into that. But um, from a third party looking at this story, that's the one hole I think I could see in the plan of the brothers getting away with it. It depends how convincing a job they did with the cloak. Mm. And you have to remember that if, as Jacob assumes, Joseph's been attacked and eaten by a wild animal, true, the chance of finding a body over 80 kilometres mm. is pretty small. Yeah, and all it takes is for one of the brothers to say that like, this is all that was left. Yeah, something along those those lines, and 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 for a parent, I would imagine that's enough. I don't think you mm. would, you know, like you know, don't need anything anything more than that. Mm. And so Jacob mourns for many many days, but we get a little insight at the very end of this chapter that Joseph is sold in Egypt to Potiphar, and that will come up again next episode. Yes, just a bit sad. It yeah. gets better. <laughs> It does. But the yeah, it's it's just one of those like sad stories where you're just like, Why would you like why would your siblings do this? Like, you know, like how, how jealous, you know, can 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 one be to, to sort of go to this extent? Mm. Um and to what end um and all that. I mean yeah, like I don't know. I'd be i I'm curious to know, Morgan, we sort of know the do you know the end like the end to this story? No. So what are your thoughts at this point in time? I think that he's probably going to have to change his identity and just hide hmm. or change sides, like teams. So become, a, become an Egyptian. Team Egypt. Or start <laughs> Team Egypt. his own, like, club. I was going to say club. His own, what's it called? Like Clan. 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 What club? Yeah, interesting. Because mm. it's, it's interesting reading this story with someone who doesn't know the ending mm. because it's, as Josh and I said, one of the classic Sunday school stories. Which, of course, it's in no way your fault that you don't know the ending. No. It's just 
you actually get left in suspense at this point. Yeah. No, which no. is what Genesis wants to happen. Yeah. That's, Am I that, right? <laughs> well, we're not, we, we won't spoil it. But There's <laughs> elements of what you said that are like surprisingly close, but mm. ultimately, no, you're not right. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of exciting, though, being able to like live this through yourself, Morgan, and, and have you experience it for the first time. Because, mm. um, like, you know, where we're up to, I want to get to the end of this story because mm. I because I know it. Mm-hmm. Um, but here, it's like a, we have to like hard stop here at at the um, end of thirty seven. So it's kind of I don't know. It's kind of nice that <laughs> um, of I don't know getting to relive relive it with with, with you, Morgan. Mm. I just like keep trying you... to find the ending. I've like read over and over, and I just <laughs> don't know what the ending is. It's like when you sit down with someone and get them to watch. Lord of the Rings or Star Wars for the very first time and you just mm. get to like almost relive it through them. Yeah. Are you going to tell me? <laughs> no, nah, you're going to find out next time. No. <laughs> no, but it was very much uh, hinted at before. We'll talk about <laughs> this offline. <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot of foreshadowing going on in the dreams Joseph had and that is the only hint I will give you. Does he turn into a star? <laughs> <laughs> no, it becomes a bale of hay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'll find out next episode <laughs> because Genesis intentionally keeps us in suspense yeah. by now going to a story about Judah. And it does that because the Judah that we saw in chapter 37 is someone who has just volunteered to sell his brother into slavery, which is a pretty awful thing to do. But the Judah that we're going to meet in chapter 44, which is when Joseph is reunited with his brothers, is a totally changed man. Now, 22 years will pass in between the time that Joseph is sold here and then meets his brothers again. And chapter 38 is meant to be our explanation of how the hard-hearted, evil Judah became the man of compassion and self-sacrifice that we will meet later in Genesis. Hmm. And so this story is meant to be explaining how that happened. How did we see this character change Mm. in preparation for his reunion with Joseph later on? So so that's sort of the purpose, so, so that we can see the change of character. I think that's the exact purpose of 38. Yeah. The name Judah to me is such a powerful name. Like anyone I've met that has the name Judah, I just feel like you're so powerful and I'm not sure why. I think that's because historically the tribe that comes from Judah is a very powerful tribe. Mm. And the name has, yeah, I think cont- from that context, the name has that gravitas. Mm. But the, just how you like say Judah also. Like, <laughs> the strong D. The strong D-A-H at the end. Fun <laughs> fact about the name Judah, when I used to hear that Bible song that says like, like you can sing it to learn the order of the names of the Bible. I always thought Deuteronomy was Judah-ronomy. Like, oh, there you go. Hmm. I was wondering where that story was going because I was like, there is no book you know of the, the Bible called I mean? Judah. You know the like... No, I don't. No, that's actually something I don't know. What? I even know that. There's a, so I don't know the order. It didn't help me, but I've heard <laughs> <laughs> I have to look up the, the, the song that can help you remember the books of the Bible. Yeah, I thought that... it was Judah-ronomy. <laughs> it's not. Judah-ronomy. <laughs> Well, it's good to know the the intent and the purpose of this story because it's one of those ones where you're sort of you're going through it and then you're like, whoa, <laughs> w- why do I need to know about this? Yes, especially when we're left in suspense about Joseph. It's just it again one of those wild, um, wild old Old Testament stories. Yep. That- and listeners of our podcast will remember that we actually discussed this story in our Q and A episode on Matthew because Tamar, who appears in this story is an ancestor of Jesus. I mean, oh, of course. Judah is as well, but we had a question about Tamar in our Matthew Q&A episode, and we briefly described her story in the Bible, which is this chapter. Yes. And I remember you commenting on the weird wackiness of Old Testament stories, and so I've been waiting for us to reach this, Josh. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well we've, we've had a couple already <laughs> going through, but this one definitely is up there. Sounds wrong to me. That's all I've got to say. What sounds wrong to you, Morgan? If I read it right, it's the widow marrying the person who dies brother. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like that's really not right. Interesting, because that is the right thing to do in this society. Yeah, see, I just think, like, you wouldn't do that these days. I think it's really weird. I know it's really different, but mm. it just doesn't sit well with me. Yeah, fair. But in this ancient context, so Tamar marries the firstborn son of Judah, which is Ur, 
and Ur dies. It actually says God puts him to death for his evil. Yeah, that... Which maybe we want to pause on for a second. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because that, I remember reading that. as like God saw that he was wicked and then just put him to death, mm-hmm. like, you know. And... and you've got to wonder what he did. Like, yeah. Judah just sold his brother for money. Levi and Simeon wiped out an entire village. Reuben slept with his father's wife. And yet it is Ur, the son of Judah, that God puts to death for his wickedness. And um, I just can't get past the name Ur. Like, you keep saying it, and I, uh, I just can't get past the name. Put some effort into your kids' names. Yeah. Um, wicked Ur. Mm. Mm. And, then, you know, and, and, in verse 8, it is saying that the law required of the brother of the man who had died, you must produce an heir for your brother. Yeah, yeah. So we'll return to Morgan's thought about this being weird to her. Yeah. In this ancient society, a widowed woman who has no husband anymore and no sons is in significant danger of death or abuse. Part of the point of this was to protect the woman, but part of the point of this was also so that no family would ever die out. And so the point was the next brother would marry her and whatever first child came of their union would be considered the son of the Mm. first brother. And so, therefore, all the inheritance that would have gone to that brother will go to that child. Mm. The family name of the original brother will continue through that child. So, even though biologically it's the second brother's child, for the sake of the family, it is now known as the first child's son. And so, by having this system set up, you both protect the widows who don't have anyone around to protect or fend for them anymore. And you also make sure family lines never die out. Mm. And it's a very um, sort of tribalistic, keeping the tribe, Mm. um, keeping the clan alive. And if you look at how um, farmers of livestock, they don't necessarily always look at their livestock as individuals, but they look at it as a... um, the the pool of animals that they have and keeping that like you know if it's like cows or cattle keeping the herd of cattle going rather Mm. than necessary individuals so it's like almost that sort of very similar thinking of keeping that that tribe that family alive Mm. it's probably important to note that this practice is never commanded in scripture it was clearly a common practice at the time of the book of genesis If we fast forward to the time of God's law being given in Deuteronomy 25, um, this system is presented as a good option, but it's no longer compulsory. Mm. So clearly in times of Genesis, this was the expectation. Like Mm. you would do this to not do so was to go against the family ethic. But by the time of Deuteronomy and the rest of ancient Israel, this was considered a good and helpful thing to do for the reasons I outlined, yeah. but no longer like a strict legal, you must do it. And I think, you know, there, there might have been something culturally where back then it was like the, the power and the numbers, mm. and that's where the sort of authority was really sort of coming from, where here we can get, like taking a stab, like our power and our authority in our culture and our time can be sort of claimed, if you will, differently or multiple different avenues rather than having a strong family. There is, in a real sense, less physicality to the way that we gain power. Yes. But for ancient people, like, power was physical power. Yeah. And that comes a long way through numbers. Yeah. That make, that's a good way of putting it, yeah. But Onan was not on board with this system. <laughs> so while he married Tamar, he did not want to produce a child that would be considered his dead brother's child. Hmm. It just seems a bit drastic to kill him for that. See, what Onan is doing here is breaking a very important for the time family value. And he's really using and abusing Tamar for his own sexual gratification. Mm. Like that is the situation here. And you can see why out of greed, because he knew the child would not be considered his. Instead, it would be his brother's, which means his inheritance from his father would be lessened. Mm. But if his brother's line was allowed to die out, then his inheritance from his father was suddenly a lot bigger. And and I, I hate to sort of say it, but I think it's also taking advantage of his brother's wife as well. Yeah. Well, now his wife, but yeah. Yeah. Now his now his wife, but t- but you know, taking advantage of the fact that you know need to produce an offspring. Yeah. He's absolutely abusing the situation. Mm. 
and like his brother before him, he's also put to death for his wickedness. And so moving on with the story, um, Judah sees that two of his sons have died while being married to Tamar, concludes that she's the issue, promises that, yeah, you can marry my third son when he comes of age, and then as time goes by, it becomes very clear that he has no intention of doing that. And so he has no intention of doing that because he thinks that Tamar is the issue. There's at least a possibility. Yeah. And so Tamar is out to get revenge? I don't think it's revenge as much as what is owed to her. Yeah. She is owed a husband and she is owed offspring. And Judah is the person who owes her those things. And in a society where family is everything, that's the only way she can get what she deserves mm. or is owed. Yeah. Now, this when you read the words daughter-in-law... We got to we like it, it. We suddenly get into this like territory where it starts to get like sort of like icky, <laughs> if you will. The, like, I think that, it's meant to be icky. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's none of it's none of it's good. Where Tamar goes out of her way to proposition. I think it's the other way around. Judah propositions Tamar. Yeah. She just went to the right place and dressed in the right things and. Ah uh, yeah. Okay. Yep. Not the other way around. Yes. So it was yeah yeah. So it was Jude. It's Judah's lust that. Judah was the last lustful one. Yeah, but I think there is also a type of explanation for that. I don't think there's ever a good explanation for lust, but <laughs> just so we're very clear. But we are told in the text that his wife has passed away. It says that he completed a appropriate time of mourning. And then after that time of mourning for his wife, it is the time of the sheep shearing. And what we know from Canaanite religion is that the time of sheep shearing was also the same time as a festival where they would engage in sex, which they believed helped fertility of the flocks. So the human owners having sex would help the f- fertility of the flocks ongoing, and they hmm. celebrated that at the same time that they sheared the sheep. What? <laughs> Welcome to Ancient Beliefs and Thoughts, what Morgan. What is going on? I don't know if that's got any medical ground to it. <laughs> I don't think we could say Canaanite religion had any medical ground to it whatsoever. No. Because it's, it's, it's a festive time in the Canaanite religion, and what the Canaanite religion did during festive times is everyone had sex all the time with everyone, which is why Tamar dressed up as a prostitute on the side of the road, knew that she could definitely score with Judah. Mm. Like it's all a timing thing and it was perfectly timed. Yeah. Whereabouts is the place that's mentioned um, from verse 14 a name? Is that significant? It's significant, but we have legitimately no idea where it is, (laughs) if that is at all helpful. (laughs) So the word a name means eyes. And so it's meant to be ironic in that Judah was not able to recognise Tamar at a location that is known as eyes or sight or vision. And so there is a great deal of irony going on with the name of this place, even though we don't (laughs) actually know where it is. Well, I mean, I find it interesting that they had an identification seal. Mm. And so that's sort of like a um, quite a both as an identification thing to, to, to mark who this person is, but also taking that is something of great value as well. Well, yeah, because she's effectively asking for a deposit, right? Yes. Is He's like, I will pay you, what, a young goat. That is the payment for what we're about to do. And she goes, yeah, where's the young goat? I don't see it. Like, yeah. I want payment up front first. And he goes, ah, oh, you can hang on to my staff and my seal and that will be my deposit to make sure I promise to come back and actually mm. bring you the young goat. But, of course, he couldn't find her. No, after the deed was done. Mm-hmm. He does try to keep up his word and bring the goat, but she's nowhere to be seen. And then we fast forward three months. Which is interesting because after three months, that's when people found out because Judah was told. Mm. But before that, even asking people around the village that they, they'd never seen this person before. So at some point, the word had gotten out or someone had worked it out and eventually it got, to, got back to Judah. I don't think anyone worked it out in terms of what Tamar did. In what they worked out was at around three months, they realized Tamar was pregnant. Yes. And they went, wait, aren't you like promised to Judah's last son? Like, mm. 
that's not okay. And Judah responds in anger. And I think it would have been a surprise to literally everyone when then she whips out this seal and this staff and says, you're right, Judah, I've done an awful thing. Who who owns these things? That's the person who did it. Mm. And so, you know, you're almost like baiting them to be like, whoever did this, you should like strike them down or like mm. you should, you should like you, Judah, should punish them. They should also be burnt because you said I deserve to burn. To be burnt, yeah. And then, you know, you can imagine like Judah going, yes, yes, yes. And then she then you know, does the big reveal and then the shock and awe on like Judah's face. It's like an epic face. mic drop moment. Yeah. Like, or, a, or a staff drop moment. Staff. But yes, the big reveal, Judah, you are the father. Judah realises and says, she is more righteous than I. Mm. Which is, I think, the exact turning point in Judah's life. Mm. He's been a terrible person before this moment. And yet from this moment onwards, we start to see a change, Judah, in this very moment. And it's interesting how the switch is almost immediate. Like the, that realisation and his, his, his turn here, it's not... Like almost, you could you could play you could see this being played out as Judah getting really upset with Tamar, then starting to blame Tamar that mm. you've deceived me, and like this is now like you could really turn it back on Tamar and and say this is all your fault and continue with the burning. Mm. But he has he has the change of heart here. Yeah, mm. I mean, it even specifically says, and he did not sleep with her again, mm. like ever. Like this could have been a perfect excuse to marry her or have another wife and then take advantage of her in, in a different type of way. But instead, she becomes the mother of his kids. Mm-hmm. Actually, a question I have that I have not looked up the answer to is, are those kids considered the child of Judah's firstborn son? Because that is the way that legally it was meant to work. Or are they considered Judah's kids? That's an interesting question because you would think that, so yeah, by law it be the original firstborn... But in terms of household structure, right, Judah is higher than the firstborn son. Mm. So does Judah supersede that? And then the twins become the kids or the father is Judah. Like biologically, the father is Judah. But in terms of hierarchy, my money is on Judah. (laughs) Well, I know that Judah's genealogy appears multiple times throughout the Bible. For instance, the last chapter of Ruth, um, the first chapter of Matthew, the third chapter of Luke. So I'm just very quickly Bible swapping to see who is listed as the father of Perez, because that, spoiler alert, leads to Jesus. So in the genealogies of this family line in the rest of the Bible, it's Judah, the father of Perez. So they've just gone with the straight biology rather than the, the legal vagueness of, is it Judah's firstborn son's wife, yeah. etc. And I, I, I almost think that like just being the head of the house, being yeah. the head just supersedes it as well. I like the name Perez. Yeah. Josh had a medical question and Morgan, you're the closest thing we have to a yes. medical expert. Is it at all possible for one baby to stick their arm out during the birthing process, then have it pulled back in and then the second baby to be born first? And the- so I'm not a nurse or a midwife or clinical like that but, but you're a healthcare um, worker there's, there's a birth canal and i'm pretty sure both can't come in at the same time or do a swap so well it's, it's an arm and then a pull back the arm yeah i don't think no no <laughs> no do you think no, it's curious. possible from a not <laughs> from well, a, non-medical. a non-medical professional but a scholar of the bible I want to say yes, it's possible <laughs> well just because it's just because it's written here yeah <laughs> it's what it says I'm just sort of thinking about that situation of the midwife. Oh, like, you know, it's putting the, the, the scarlet string around the child's wrist um, to identify... It as the firstborn. As the firstborn. But then it getting sucked <laughs> back in and that midwife just just going, what what is happening? Because <laughs> does it then say when they were... Um, who was the firstborn? Yes. So the one with the scarlet thread. So they do... So it is... So even... Even still. He's still considered the firstborn, which, again, we see in another generation, it is the younger that is given priority. Mm. So in the same way that Isaac was the youngest, in the same way that Jacob was the youngest, here, the youngest of Judah's sons 
will be the line that leads to Jesus. It's interesting how this whole idea of the last will be first and the first will be last <laughs> is throughout the Bible. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and not just as what Jesus said. Mm. So, yes, Perez is the ancestor of the Davidic kingship, so an ancestor of King David. It's from his line that the, or the kings of Israel will come, and it's from his line that we'll get our Lord and Saviour, mm. Jesus. So here is his great, 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 times a lot grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like after having all that, like that story of Judah and Tamar and sort of going through that different roller coaster, you then have this, the birth of these twins. And you're like, it's not just a quote unquote normal birth. <laughs> no. A kid has to stick his hand out first. And then, like, it, it's <clears throat> as we keep, like, we sort of said at the start, none of this story is like our typical Sunday school. Um, <laughs> let's go through the no. Bible. <laughs> it's strange how we go from one story that is the gold standard of Sunday school stories in verse 30, in chapter 37, to one that would never be touched in a million years in a Sunday school context in chapter 38. No. But it's important because the Judah that we will meet again in several chapters' time when he meets up with his brother Joseph is a changed man. Mm. And it's this interaction, this crazy, weird-as story that has begun to bring him around to the honourable man that we will meet later on. So as we reflect over what we've just read in the chapters that we've gone through, my um, final thought that's really now just sticking with me is what I said before of that idea of the last is first and the first is last. As in, It's becoming very much more apparent as we see twins get born and as we see um, siblings get born and the we have more interactions with the um, youngest child um, here. So that I think it's not an obvious one to take away from this um, set of passages that we've read, but I don't know, that's something that's I think just been revealed to me as as a very apparent thing that's being um, throughout the Bible, not just as a thing that Jesus says when he's around. <laughs> Fair. My final thought is, I love looking at the stories of character growth. There's something about that that I find really powerful. And so in chapter 37, we met Joseph, who's this brash young teenager saying things to rile up his brothers. Mm. Now, next episode, we'll meet a man of wisdom and tact, but we've, we've started with, here's the brash young teenager. Mm-hmm. In the same way, we started with a Judah that was prepared to sell his brother into slavery who was prepared to leave Tamar out in the cold and not marry his final son to her. And yet what we, again, will see in the future is a man of compassion, a man of self-sacrifice. And so while this episode was a lot of the negative sides of these people, that's the very important first step to see that real character growth is possible. It's part of the biblical story. And there's just something about seeing people grow that excites me as a pastor. I think a final thought that I hate to admit is that even though I don't like the genealogy, it's actually helpful to put everything together, (laughs) especially as a newbie. I think it's good to talk about it with someone who understands it a bit more Mm. um, rather than just me who just sees names. But, yeah, so it is actually interesting. Don't love it, but it is helpful. So that's probably my final thought. Well, there is one more genealogy in the entire book of Genesis to go, Morgan. So you can love slash hate that when we reach it. (laughs) Sounds good. So as we wrap up here, I'd love to know everyone that's been watching and listening, their thoughts. Um, Send us in your questions, send us in your thoughts, send us in your comments and what you got out of these chapters of the Bible. Keep up to date with our social medias. You can go find them on our link tree. And if you want to support us financially, then you can head over to Patreon. There you'll get uh, extra content, extra long content. And also we post these earlier there and also we get to see your comments there as uh, as well and, uh, and any questions there too 
Speaking of questions, we're building up to our Q&A episode at the end of the season. We are. And so if you have any questions, Patreon or not, please send them our way. We are compiling a nice looking Word document at the moment of questions to answer in that episode. Mm, and as we're getting sort of to the tail end of, of uh, Genesis, share, share the podcast around. We've got an entire um, season of Matthew that you can mm-hmm. share to someone. And once we get through Genesis as well, we've got that to share. So share it with someone that hasn't heard heard it or uh, someone that you think might be, find this beneficial. But not only do we want the podcast to be shared, but we want the Word of God to be shared. Mm. Lockie, can I get you to end in prayer? Absolutely. Lord Jesus, thank you for your Word. Um, Even when it is crazy and wild and we don't totally know what's going on, we thank you that every element of it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. And I pray that us and our listeners may continue to have all of those things happen to us as we read through it and discover you and your Father clearly within. I pray that in your name. Amen. 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 Well, Lockie and Morgan, thank you. Thanks. Everyone that's listening and watching, thank you. And we'll see everyone next week. Bye. 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 A Mustard Seed Creative Production.